Hello there, and welcome to Fuzz on Film. I'm Drew, joined today by Craig. Hello. And Scott. Well, hello there. This is our compare and contrast slot, where we take two films and compare and contrast them. You know, one day that'll actually be what we do, rather than just having two films we talk about that are vaguely related, but, well... <laughs> We'll Today is not that day. <laughs> <laughs> so, our, uh, for no particular reason, our two films this episode are Source Code and Repo Men, uh, with a broad connection of them being things that only sort of happen in someone's mind, sort of, maybe, for reasons. <laughs> uh, we're going to begin, I think, with Repo Men. Uh, I, I decide, yes, Repo Men, because that's the one I have decided upon. Excellent uh, choice. So, uh, Craig... Take Things away. that sort of happen in someone's mind, maybe. Sort that of. tired old genre. <laughs> <laughs> I think Eric Garcia read an article about the nascent technology of synthetic organs and their potential impact on the transplant process in 2008. And I also think this was right about the same time he read an article on the origins of band names, taking particular interest in Spandau Ballet. I think this because his 2009 novel, The Repossession Mambo, quite the worst title for a book I have ever encountered in my Nelly (laughs) Puff, was adapted for the screen in 2010 in the guise of Repo Men, a logical, nay prophetic interpretation of the march of late-stage capitalism, the increasingly depressingly believable plot of Repo Men (laughs) revolves around artificial organs being offered on easy credit, typical APR 19%, with a three-month grace period on missed payments before the debt collectors knock on your door. Only these debt collectors, played by Jude Law and Forrest Whitaker, are less likely to knock than they are to blow out the hinges, tasers drawn and scalpels at the ready, because, in case the penny has yet to drop, repossessing a liver is an intrinsically more violent proposition than pulling up in a Fiat Decato and chucking a dishwasher in the back. Not that union company boss Lee Schreiber cares too much about your problems. The commission on sales is pretty good. And you know you ought to sign because, well, you owe it to you, you owe it to your young family not to die of lung cancer. All is well in the amoral world of organ reclamation until a seemingly chance encounter with a dodgy defibrillator sees Jude Law's Remy launched arse over tit into a coma, awaking to find himself the recipient of a shiny new union heart. In case you hadn't guessed, your heart may be at risk if you do not keep up repayments on your heart. A fact not lost on Remy, or indeed Whitaker's Jake, who, in time-honoured fashion of the classic Jobsworth, is willing to set aside a couple of decades of friendship to toe the company line and pursue his former colleague when he can't keep pace with his payments. Into the mix goes Alice Braga as sultry nightclub singer Beth, on the down and out due to her status as a multi-organ recipient, and who teams up with Remy in an attempt to remove themselves from the union's credit records. The influences upon which Repo Men draws are pretty evident, though for the most part think Blade Runner meets Minority Report on a bit of a tight budget, and with a penchant for a bit more of the old claret than is probably strictly necessary. It's not a subtle film, its thematic content writ fairly large, chiefly in blood on the wall, but I do have a soft spot for films as unsophisticated as this when it comes to tackling the glaringly obvious, increasingly large elephant in the ever-shrinking room, namely, that as a species, our bizarre propensity for pandering to corporate entities in their pursuit of arbitrary levels of fiscal advancement through the entirely imaginary construct of capital has left us totally f***ed. That we have for some time known that we were going to get totally f***ed 
and yet we have equally bizarrely and collectively assuaged ourselves of the anguish of being totally fucked by avoiding any of the woefully apparent mechanisms by which we may at any time over the last hundred years or so chosen to leverage in order to immediately un ourselves. On Sunday the 25th of April in 2010, episode 61 of the OneLiner.com's podcast was published, extolling the relative merits of this movie in the face of overwhelming a critical drubbing. While I may be slightly less inclined to sing the praises of Repo Men today than I was a living in a bit years ago, I still found myself enjoying it well enough, even if it does need to shed a good 20 to 30 minutes or so depending on the version you watch. Jude Law remains, as Drew pointed out at the time, an unexpectedly engaging nominal protagonist, Whitaker is as dependable as ever and Schreiber is brilliantly if you get what I mean Braga doesn't get much to do but then she is a woman and this is an action movie from 2010 so you know this was director Miguel Sapochnik's debut effort and all things considered it isn't too terrible certainly not terrible enough to suggest that he ought to have spent quite so much time in the doldrums as luck would have it he's back on screens this month with Apple Plus's Tom Hanks plus a robot affair Finch which has also had middling reviews at best but which I'll no doubt check out anyway given that I remained comparatively entertained by Repo Men not one for the week of stomach, on which note can I interest you in this stomach? Just 144 easy payments of $4,340.28. <laughs> You're suggesting, Craig, that we as a species have, you know, kind of screwed ourselves, have we? You know, a species that, in you the slight state of capitalism, on a, in a planet that is basically on fire, has invented NFTs. You, you may infer that, Drew. <laughs> we are super clever, we are. Yeah, I, I was aware of having quite enjoyed this when we spoke about it in our one-liner guys. I, I didn't go back and listen to that episode, actually. Um, but having watched this again a few days ago, I kind of came to the conclusion that former Drew was an idiot because I did not enjoy it this time at all. <laughs> it's weird, though. Some of the, well, it's like seems some of the more far-fetched stuff is actually the, the easier-to-believe stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the the fact that people are being left to die while they take these organs out of them and all this credit is being offered to anybody and everybody because that's all they care about is the interest and things because uh, in our late stage capitalist society, in particular the United States, that's entirely believable in a country whose corrupt and amoral and completely broken healthcare system sees people literally begging people not to call them an ambulance even because even while they're dying because they can't afford the ambulance. So that chunk of this film seems entirely cromulent. The rest of it, though, eh. I'm watching this thinking, how many people need transplants exactly? <laughs> that was a weird hook to hang that on. So, um, there's hints of Alice Bagger's character where she's it's kind of upgrades and she's a singer, mm. so she upgraded her voice box and her hearing. So actually, that made sense. But she's the one person in the film that that seems to be a thing for. For everybody else, you see, or is mentioned, it's transplants. People don't need transplants that much. It doesn't happen. It's really rare. It's only when your body is just like irrevocably broken, when you're just beyond every other medical um, advancement, that transplants are even a thing for people. It's, it's a vanishingly rare number of people. So that's what they based their, the film on. It's, eh. I think you're thinking too much. Is it because I'm thinking (laughs) at all? (laughs) I mean, there's some interesting ideas in there. The gore, I suspect, entertained me a bit more back then. This time, it's like, it's gory, it's fine. 
although just this time I'm questioning, well, why did they bother showing the, the very elaborate setup of Jude Law at the start, putting on the overcoats and getting everything all clean and stuff, when it's like not everybody else would just basically rip stuff out of them later on and get covered in blood? What was the point of that scene? Yeah, and then you've got Forrest Whitaker's character sabotaging the unit and causing Jude Law to have that, but Forrest Whitaker's character supposedly repeated the fourth grade four times. No. And I'm just not believing Forrest Whitaker is that dumb a person as well. The casting didn't work for me this time around. And Carrie Van Houten's character, who's this miserable, horrible shrew because the film has to happen. That's a, a character that just basically exists just to be a pain in Jude Law's arse for no good reason. Yeah, and then he's got, he suddenly sets all his sights on Alice Braga, who he doesn't know at all, but suddenly he's in love with her because the script demanded it. I just hate all that stuff. I've no time for it anymore. I've seen too many crappy films, and I, just, I want films with actual characters now and like believable motivations. And this ain't it, Chief. Yeah, so that's really disappointing this time. It's not awful, but this time I was thinking more things like, why is Jude Law English if he went to the same school as Forrest Whitaker? <laughs> <laughs> the minor stuff around the outside is like that's what was bothering me. This because the main thrust of it was not grabbing me at all. I can certainly agree it's not the most internally consistent film in the world, but uh, it didn't really bother me all that much. I still fairly enjoyed uh, my time with Repo Men again. I've not, I think, thought about this at all in the last eleven years. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this well enough. I don't think it deserved to flop quite as badly as it did uh, back in the day. It still remained relatively enjoyable. I think it's um, something that's trying desperately to be more of a kind of Total Recall-esque action movie first, rather than any kind of particularly consistent science fiction scenario. Um, mm. It has enough kind of flavour to it to kind of keep me entertained and uh, dragged along in it. But yes, it's it's primarily more about chasing and um, Jude Law's central performance, which is probably, I think, just enough to keep this film on the straight and narrow and to keep me engaged enough with it. But yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not going to go to bat for it being um, either in any way game-changing or, um, <laughs> as you yeah. say, even, even remotely internally consistent. Uh, but I don't think still it is anything like as uh, dire as its reception uh, was given to be. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what uh, Sapoch next back on uh, with on the big screen. Obviously he's done a, a fair amount of fairly um, high-profile television stuff in intervening time. So, mm. um, yeah, we'll see. I don't think Finch has... Finch? Fitch? Fitch? Finch. 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 I don't believe it has particularly great reviews, but, um, well, you'll get to hear opinions on that in a mere 10 days. So, yes, <laughs> stick around for that. Talking <laughs> yeah. about consistency, internal consistency, though, Scott, um, the tone, I wish you would pick one. <laughs> because, like, I mean, I... Do not care for innovation generally. It adds nothing to this film, although it's quite a lot of it for some reason. And it's it's Jude Law kind of telling parts of his life in, until about two-thirds of the way through the film when it just stops dead, but not at the point where I thought it did, which was like when it's all happening inside his head. It actually stops before then. If it had been yeah. like right at the same point, it would actually make mm. sense. But no, it doesn't. It just <laughs> it stops at two-thirds of the film, two-thirds of the film before that. Um, he's narrated stuff it's like, for those keeping count, this will be the fourth time I've been knocked unconscious, but then you'll know, <laughs> yeah. surrounded either side of that by people having organs ripped out of their body and then being left to die. <laughs> it's a laugh riot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, similarly to you, Scott, this didn't trouble uh, too many of my neurons uh, since the time we saw it, and uh, to the point where I had to I had to check the IMDb page to recall that I had actually seen it. But then going back and listening to uh, a review of it, which and imagine that an episode of the podcast covering four films that lasted sixteen minutes, including introductions and outros. Uh, those <laughs> those were the days. So yeah, it's uh, it, it was fun then. I thought it was relatively fun now. Am I ever going to watch this again? Probably not. No. But I'm not going nah. to tell anyone else not to watch it if they've got two hours spare and I don't know, they just fancy something a bit different. I think it's got the good grace to have a bit of a sense of humour about itself, which is kind of essential when you're dealing with this kind of thing, I think. But yeah, it's kind of not necessarily here or there, but it's entirely competent. It's got moments of fun. It's got a very halfway decent old boy-esque uh, corridor fight scene towards the end. but Ending not, in hammer violence, which I always appreciate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Not not enough uh, not enough action for something billing itself to be predominantly an action film. And certainly, I think it was the unrated version I watched, which is 10 minutes or something longer than the theatrical version. But there wasn't anything there that I recalled n- not seeing in the cinema. I don't think there's any sort of crucial material added. Right. So I... If you've got the choice between the theatrical and the unrated version, I'd say watch the theatrical and save yourself 10 minutes um, <laughs> because this film takes quite a while to get going. Um, but, yeah, yeah, not terrible. See, I don't, I don't think it's terrible as word I'd use, but um vastly more down at it now than it was before. And from what you're saying, from having listened to that episode, you're backing up my own thoughts here. I quite enjoyed it back then, but... And you I'm did. Just left more puzzled by the utility of, and particularly the whole point of that last. So the last quarter, probably, of the film is happening inside Jude Law's character's head. Why? What, what was that saying? How was that useful or entertaining? It just felt like, well, this will be a funny twist to put on the end, won't it? And it's everything that happens in that section is also kind of stupid because the moment it happens, suddenly there's like a hundred people appear and get mowed down. It just it all just seems like suddenly over the top, and I don't see the point of that last section that isn't actually happening. Your tastes very much have changed in ten years yeah. because uh, in <laughs> listening back to our podcast, you do mention the fact that the plot twist is something that actually, for once, you quite enjoyed. That was my memory of it. That was that yeah. I enjoyed that, that I enjoyed. That's why I was looking forward to watching this again. And I also, you like, quite enjoyed the second tier posters as well, Drew. The second tier posters? Yeah, the secondary posters for this film. So not the sort of main poster, but the sort of the other marketing material. That's possible because I hate all modern movie posters apart from like one in a thousand because they're all garbage and all the same film, all the same poster. It's a multiple of men with guns. (laughs) (laughs) Val, every film that comes out is even vaguely large budget has at least one version of the poster which is the same as every Star Wars poster has been since 1977. Mm. You know that sort of vaguely... <laughs> Faces stacked up collection. on top of each other. Yeah. yeah. The face pile. Of those. I hate it. <laughs> no, I just, this time I'm watching like, well, what, what's the point of this twist? What is it saying? What's its utility? It's like, I guess that was a fun thing to try. Okay, no, it's doing nothing for me now. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily saying anything. It's it's kind of fun in, in the way that, that when it starts sort of cranking itself up to being you know very silly rather <laughs> than just silly, that that kind of is retrospectively made sense of by the twist. But uh, yeah, 
in terms of actually saying anything about anything, I, I don't necessarily think that it does, other than it would just be a, a cool little um, twist mm. they thought would, would work. And still did, to me at least. So well, I think it's life. I, I don't want other people to have um, not enjoyed, apparently, you two. I was just, um, well, just, yes, you do, you <laughs> heartless beast. <laughs> well, I didn't really want to talk to you, but yes, you're right. Yes. <laughs> Suffer least, like me did. L- at least have the at least have the decency to own it, Drew. I think for me the big difference between ten years ago and now is that ten years ago I'd look at a piece of pop culture material like this and go, ha, 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 "Yes, I know." Doesn't it look like an inevitable trajectory? But thank goodness we're creatures of of reason and we can see this sort of stuff far enough in advance. We will take measures to avoid it. Whereas now you watch this film and go, "Yeah, we know." It's like yes, yep. Frightening documentary. Consideration there, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, mixed opinions on this film. Let's see whether um, they remain mixed for our next film, where the whole it's happening inside his head thing is part and parcel of the whole film, and that's 2010's Source Code. Scott, give us a recap on that, please. It's always a little disorientating, waking up on a train, but particularly so if you wake up in a different country and month and body. Uh, Such is the case for Jake Gyllenhaal's Captain Coulter Stevens, whose last memory was flying a mission over Afghanistan, but he now appears to be inhabiting the body of a teacher, Sean Fentress, on a routine Chicago commute, talking with a prospective love interest, Michelle Monaghan's Christina Warren. But before he can get his bearings, the train blows up. It's always a little disorientating, waking up in a cockpit after being blown up on a train in a different country in month and body, etc, etc. Um, this time, a suitably confused and agitated Stevens is talked down by Vera Farmiga's Captain Colleen Goodwin, whose briefing tells him that he's in a strange, continually vaguely defined experimental technology called Source Code, which is basically inserting him into the last eight minutes of Sean Fenders' life. Whoever is behind that bombing is believed to have been on the train and has an even greater threat in the planning. So, Goodwin and the project's truculent creator, Jeffrey Wright's Dr. Rutledge, send Stevens back into the time loop again and again, not to stop the train exploding, but to identify the terrorist and report back. You see, even though it seems very much like an alternate timeline is being created every time Stevens is cycled through the source code, it isn't because, well, Rutledge says so. So there. Uh, Stevens doesn't quite believe him, perhaps both fated by finding out what really happened to him on his last mission in Afghanistan and not wanting that state of affairs to continue. Now, I liked this a lot a decade ago, and it stands up pretty well today in terms of being a fun ride. Uh, Director Duncan Jones keeps things moving along at enough of a breakneck clip that you won't be stopping to think about it too hard, which is pretty much key to enjoying the endeavour. It's helped along by a strong turn from Gyllenhaal, who proves a sympathetic lead as he's pulled from pillar to post and back again at aforementioned breakneck speed, and he bounces well off for Mega Wright and the somewhat underserved Christina Warren. No, that's the character's name. The somewhat underserved Michelle Monaghan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not completely sure repeat viewing is Source Code's best friend. Uh, There is such an entirely understandable wooliness to all of the time travel shenanigans that simply can't be defined, either in relation to our own quotidian reality or the film's own internal logic that would stop the film's happy ending from happening, which is something that I can give a pass to when viewing this as a fun, vaguely sci-fi flavoured thriller. But... If you prefer your science fiction more in the science than the fiction side, then this will very much not be your jam. It's a touch sad that Duncan Jones's first feature, Moon, remains his best by a decent margin, but Source Code is by no means a disgrace to his name that Mute was, and I hold up some hope for his involvement in the hopefully still upcoming 2000 AD adaptations. Indeed, Source Code makes for an entertaining morsel to hold you over until that arrives. Yes, 
quite enjoyed revisiting this one, but uh, yeah, it is probably not the kind of film that is best served by watching it repeatedly. Um, its internal logic, I think, is not particularly well defined enough to either hold together or fall apart. It's um, kind of it seems to be an almost um, precision engineered to be give you just enough information to get through the film without actually being able to go back and really pick it apart because it doesn't really tell you anything one way or the other to, to, to really give you much of a basis on it um, but yes who cares it's an enjoyable film um, and it's a really enjoyable little um what was it 90 100 minutes whatever it is um yeah, roller coaster ride yes, oh. yes. Um, i don't I, I remember going to see this at the cinema with my wife and uh, coming out thinking, yeah, that was pretty good, but I absolutely loathe the ending, which is just far too twee for its own good. Um, and if I may just clear the floor for Drew, uh, I have not returned to this film because I would have watched it tonight had I not forgotten we were recording tonight as opposed to tomorrow, which I had in my head. <laughs> so I've got nothing to say about whether or not I still enjoy this film now. Over to you, Drew. Yes, first of all, I'd like to... Well, I'm trying not to swear on this, but I, I shall curse Scott, at least internally, for bringing up Mute which I had forgotten existed. So, you know, thanks for that, you bastard. <laughs> Although, yeah, the biggest problem with Mute, apart from, like, what the hell was going on with Mute, was it was just such a disappointment. Yeah. yeah I, I really enjoyed this at the time. I've watched it a couple of times since. I really enjoyed this time. The the key with the film is probably, Scott, as you're saying, it's, it's not to watch it repeatedly. Every now and then I'll do you fine. It's a really um, fun ride. Yeah bombs along uh, like you Craig I'm not enormously fond of the ending the problem is that it sort of stops being a sci-fi action film at that point or sci-fi film at all and sort of becomes a relationship drama ish it starts verging more towards that although there's some touchy moments in there particularly Jake Gyllenhaal's character's call with the uncredited Scott Bakula as his dad and he even managed mm. to get Scott Bakula saying oh boy Quantum Leap style, <laughs> without actually being Quantum Leap style, it's quite subtle, which I quite appreciated. Yeah, but that, it's, it is a bit twee, that ending. It's salvaged a little by the fact that part of it does come back around to the sci-fi element of it, with the final message sent to Vera Farmiga's character through email. So there's a, there's a hint of like the sort of parallel realities thing there, that this is like more than just whatever Jeffrey Wright says it is even if he doesn't know, but yeah, it's a bit twee, the relationship part of it, and also it does raise the question of, wait a minute, if that's Jake Gyllenhaal's card, if that's Coulter Stevens there, what happened to the person whose body has gotten, and everybody yeah. else seems to be themselves, so <laughs> that, that brings up ethical issues. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, I really enjoyed Jake Gyllenhaal's career, I've always liked him, and uh, he's, his character goes on quite a journey there. And you can, and it, it's actually that his character. Yes, really he's on a train because he's. That just totally derailed me. <laughs> oh, um, uh, stay on track, Drew. <laughs> 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 uh, that's the ticket. Oh, 
are you all desperately thinking about other more trade puns? Yeah, I was considering doing that, but stopped because I like, <laughs> generally can't remember where I was going. Oh. Um, Much like Scott Rail. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the journey that Coulter Stevens is on, J.H. Hill's character. At the start, he's, you know, he's been quite like brusque with the people he's interacting with, he's assaulting people, but because he quickly doesn't believe that they're real, that the thing's real. Yeah. And, you know, the character changes and he's actually, he questions that guy with the, the beard to sit next to the ginger-haired student and then when he realises it's not him, he's like, oh, no, sorry. You know, it's like, there's, there's subtle changes in, like, the script and the way he's speaking there. It's like, oh, right, yeah, because he's realising these are real people. Yeah, that's yeah. the training kicking in. Uh, uh. And then the the concept of the structure works quite well too. They, they set up this. I mean, this the science is nonsense. Mm. Actually, the science and repo men is considerably stronger. Yeah, the science. Yeah. Here. Yeah, the, um, the science stroke magic. <laughs> uh, yeah, and not in a um, any sufficiently advanced technology sort of way. No, just mm. actual magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it works out with the, the, they said that it's this eight-minute cycle. So that actually structurally is quite a good length of time because you can have a few things that play out in real time without it feeling like it's dragging. Then you can sort of jump around within the eight minutes without feeling like it's just been unnecessarily sped up. Or you could maybe like, like you've got one section of eight minutes on a train where you might think, actually, was that actually eight minutes in real time? It may have been and not know. Um, yeah. And it just uh, it helps with the pacing really well. And if you're feeling like you're just constantly repeating stuff, or that's lots of been lots has been skipped over or sped up, so that eight minutes yeah. actually works really well for the film structure, um, as but, well as you know giving dramatic impetus. So, so I think that the actual structure of the film I think works really well. It where it falls down on a bit is like the well, yeah, magic. It's <laughs> it's nonsensical, <laughs> but it's um, Quentin. It's an interesting idea even though it's got no basis in reality at all. I don't really have a, a lot more to say. I enjoy it. It's, it's a well-made film. It's a well-acted film. It is nonsense, clearly, but it's very mm. enjoyable nonsense. The score's perhaps a little bombastic at times. I, I don't hugely care for the score in it. Particularly when it's like the very, very dramatic piece of music being played in the bit where J. Gyllenhaal was desperately trying to well, they're trying to contact him and he's trapped in his pod or whatever this environment he's imagining himself to be in is. Um, and he's getting quite close to death and it's just this pounding, dramatic, completely over-the-top and bombastic score playing. It doesn't really seem to suit the scene because it felt more action movie-like and it's not really an action movie in that way. Yeah, certainly not that scene, which could have <laughs> probably benefited more from complete silence. Yeah, rather yeah than certainly score, something yeah. more subtle. Yeah, and it's nice because there are some actually nice subtle bits like the first, at least the first couple of times and I, I didn't notice it later but I was listening for it and I didn't notice it so they maybe dropped or maybe I just wasn't hearing it but the first couple of times when Veer Farmer goes talking to Colter Stevens particularly the first time when he doesn't know who he is before she uses the little memory training thing she has yeah. in the surround channels there's this quite subtle but quite insistent heartbeat that's going to like that matches his stress levels and it sort of comes and goes and speeds up and slows down as he's getting stressed just played in the rear channels and it's like quite nicely done 
it's not overpowering. It, it's totally odds with that completely over top bit of music later. Right. So it's I find that kind of frustrating. So like, you've done it so well in some bits of the film. Why is it not more consistent? <laughs> uh, that's like kind of minor issues, though. The 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 meat of it is very enjoyable, but it's not something I think you could watch repeatedly. Give it a good few years apart. You know, let the the worst sins kind of wash out of your mind. <laughs> Go back, enjoy the performances and the action, and then you know, give it another seven or eight years before you watch it again. Yes. I'm going to watch it every eight minutes. <laughs> All right, that'll wrap us up for today. Uh, if there's anything you would like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason, then please do so. Uh, we're on email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or on Twitter uh, at fudsonfilm or facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. But until next time, take care of yourself and each other. I'm going to say goodbye. I'm sure these guys will do too. Mm, maybe. Uh, yeah, okay. Bye-bye.